but I think there is something around the 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 aptitude of a chef, the the ability to be able to change quickly, um, not be too um, too concerned about things when they change pretty much in front of their eyes because often they do. Um, if I look now, you know, a chef creating a menu. Not only has he got to create vegetarian options, he's got to create vegan options. He's got to create all of these different dietary requirements pretty much on the hoof. That for me, that sort of agility, that that ability to change quickly um, within the moment uh, would be very difficult for more academic brains. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Boyatras. Our guest for today is Pat Clifford. Pat is the principal research chef at PepsiCo, a brand which we all know and possibly consume on a regular basis. The idea of this episode is to learn what is it to be an R&D chef in in retail sector. Also, it is a pleasure to have Pat on the podcast because uh, the idea of the podcast is to amplify the possibilities of careers that exist in gastronomy. And I think the profile that uh, Pat presents over here is 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 unique and it's one of a, one of its kind. And also, I would like to chat with him about uh, how was his evolution in this industry, what restaurants he worked for, and uh, uh, why is it that he's a fugitive today. So yeah, without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Pat. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, if I could request you to please introduce yourself to us. So uh, my name is Pat Clifford. I work for PepsiCo, um, and I work in our global culinary group, and I'm really focusing on early stage innovation across our key food brands. So if you think uh, Doritos, Lay's, Quaker, uh, those would be three typical brands that I would work on. And I'm really focusing on uh, how can we take those brands, those typical flavors and develop either new recipes under that brand or new flavor systems, or how can we make those brands or those products a little bit more healthier? Uh, Because if you imagine a billion people a day are consuming PepsiCo products. That's you know that's quite a staggering amount of people. So and uh, I I would like to delve into this a little more about uh, what your job looks like. But it's something I think at the moment I haven't had an opportunity to interview anybody from uh, a retail aspect of uh, of food innovation. But I just wanted to ask like how did you enter the industry in the first place? Were there inspirations in your family? Did were you introduced to this at a very early age, or like how did this uh, idea come upon of being a chef? Uh, no, so really my um, you know um, and hopefully my mother won't listen to this, but she wasn't a great cook. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some, from a very early age, I was messing around in a kitchen. Um, and, you know, I, I, I sometimes I envy those people that have been brought up in an environment where food has been at the centre and they've all been able to evolve. And that, that wasn't the case for me. My, mine was a case of necessity. Um, so unless I got involved, I, I don't think we would have eaten as well as we did as, as young kids. Um, and that really sparked my interest, I guess, in food, in, in, in terms of wanting to then pursue it as a career. So from then, I moved into um, home economics, studied that at school, which was uh, a combination of food and sort of home skills. And then from then, I went into the Royal Navy. Um, so studied as a cook in the Royal Navy. Uh, and I love the idea of being able to cook, but travel at the same time. So that was really good. 
Wow. And I mean, I think uh, what you see as a disadvantage, actually, I think uh, people at PepsiCo would be happy because you don't really have a very high aspiration for, uh, for food from the beginning. Of course, you've seen through your career a lot of it, but I think you understand both sides of the, of the, of the table pretty well. And how, how was it being in the Navy? The yeah, aspiration for Navy, was it, uh, was it patriotism? Was it uh, traveling? Was it actually being in the galley? Yeah, I just feel you, you, I mean, you got some of the best training in the world. Um, you know, you, it was pretty much condensed, but you, you, you learned a lot of skills in a, in a quick space of time. Um, I love the idea of being within a team environment. Um, all, all throughout my school career, I was always in teams. I was always playing sports and I really sort of thrived in that space. Um, but then, you know, having the opportunity to then get paid to travel for me wow. was, you know, I still look at that now and think, oh, oh, could I could I find a job that would pay me to go and travel around the world? <laughs> Just looking at food, that for me would be ideal. Um, so yeah, and it, it, that that really sparked it for me for for that. The, the 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 downside was, you know, being a being a tall individual, um, the ships are pretty cramped. So you know, when you're constantly walking down with your head it's you know after a while it gets a bit tiring so um ultimately it wasn't the right career path for me but i learned a hell of a lot well i can i can only imagine uh, how that could have been uh, and moving on to like getting into the professional uh, restaurant business uh, did you get any formal training or how was it back then what was uh, restaurant getting into restaurants like at the moment yeah, so I left. Uh, I left the navy, and then I, I I went and effectively did my culinary qualifications again. So, okay, um, I I got a job at a, a hotel uh, that was owned by the Orient Express, um, and they offered me a an apprenticeship with a one day release to catering college. So, I spent four years um, studying um, one day a week, and then using the skills that I found in the kitchen. Uh, to then bring both ways so you you're learning on the job but you're also learning in a school type environment um so i did that for four years uh, to get my professional catering qualifications and at the time it was sitting guilds um, which was the recognized body and then from then uh, so i was there for five years and then i left and went to london because at that time um you know, you're sort of talking mid 80s. Uh, London was the place to be for any young chef that, that wanted some credibility. Um, so I went to work for the uh, uh, one of the hotels that was in the Savoy Group, uh, the Connaught Hotel. Um, very different style of cuisine. Uh, I'd, go for, I'd gone from real country house, large country house that did quite a lot of conference and banqueting and weddings and that type of thing, uh, to a very structured, um, organised French brigade. Um, and I was the only, at that time, I was the only English chef to party in the kitchen. And there was 40 oh, really? chefs. Yeah, I was the only, the, the whole service was conducted in French. Oh, wow. So you you uh, you learned kitchen French very very quickly. So um, there was there was more English. Yeah, there was there was more English in the kitchen, but not at so chef de party was was at that time was you know you're in charge of a section. You were seen as quite senior. Um, so you you know forty chefs. I mean I worked on the veg chef de party on the veg. I had nineteen chefs in my team. So it's like a brigade within a brigade. Um, but yeah, you, 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 it's amazing how quickly you pick up a language when you're thrown into it. 
So, um, and that was good fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, had a good team, good bunch. Uh, obviously got to spend some time in London. And, and then from there, I moved to a, a Rally and Chateau Hotel. So that was just on the outskirts of London, um, a place called Grave Time Manor. And that was really focusing on uh, kitchen, the kitchen garden that was literally in the grounds, uh, produce into the kitchen. So this, I guess what people see now as a relatively new way of cooking is, is you know, it isn't new. It's yeah. <laughs> uh, it's probably grown exponentially to, you know, you, you can't look now for a kitchen garden. And, and, you know, every time I see this, I think, oh, yeah, I used to love doing that, going out in the garden and speaking to the grower and, you know, what's coming into season and, and just having that appreciation, you know, of, oh, we've got a glut of this coming through, you know, start thinking about menu items because we've got so much that we need to get rid of. And them days, you know, you, you in, I guess in, in modern British kitchens, you wasn't doing much fermentation. Uh, that wasn't seen as a, as a potential route. Um, if I look now, you, you know, you can't move for fermented products in, in all types of kitchens. So, yeah, I was there, there for a couple of years um, as sous chef and then just needed a break. You know, like most chefs, uh, working split shifts, working long hours, working hours when... All your friends were doing nice things. You were working hard and working weekends and all those types of stuff, which you which you do because you love the profession. Um, mm-hmm. But after a while, you need a break. You need to switch off. You need to you know recharge. Um, so then I just went. I went travelling. I decided to go travelling uh, as a break. So um, spent some time in Southeast Asia, and then went out to Australia. Um, I really just started to learn about different styles of food, different cultures, different ingredients, different methods. Um, and I think that really helped me when I come back mm-hmm. to then begin to consider a career in development. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we don't realize in most cases, kitchen burnout doesn't get, I mean, it does just get realized because... The other aspect is you should have time to realize it because we are so occupied with, you know, delivering and like constantly delivering. And then I think another factor which helps is, it's just not you. It's so many of us involved in it that you kind of feel better. Okay. okay, I'm doing a little better than the other person right next to me. And you try to help. I mean, I I find that really beautiful. However toxic all of this sounds, uh, I think you can relate to that as a chef that it all sounds, I mean, when you're there at, at nine in the evening, when you know all the friends are out and you're preparing after closing lunch, for dinner service and you know the others with you are missing out on their families and their kids yeah. Yeah. it it does sound toxic and i understand all the journalism around it and i understand all of it but at that point when you're in there it doesn't feel that it doesn't it just feels like you have a goal ahead of you you're going to do it and if not just for the people serving i think that the smallest factor uh, for a day-to-day chef it's more the people around him the kind of job he does the passion i think the passion is the only thing which feeds across wherever in the world you are the money is not a factor there's no other factor which could actually feed the fire which you have as a as a chef but yeah i think i think it's yeah. it's nice to hear when you hear more uh, as perspectives from other people and it's happening everywhere in all ages of time but but yeah it sounds it sounds very interesting and i can only imagine how that can be like transitioning from that to traveling across southeast asia forgetting about uh, the industry and then coming back and how how did you find uh, how was Britain when you came back? Like, what ideas did you have? Did you think of, like, should I go back and apply to a kitchen? I'm sure you will have uh, 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 tons of applications and, and offers to, to get into the kitchen once again. 
Yeah, I think it was. Um, it, I, I was at. A, I guess I was at a little bit of a crossroads. Um, I, I, I wanted to to remain within the industry. Um, I've been exposed to a totally different way of cooking, um, different ingredients, different pantry, different cooking techniques, different chefs, ways of working, different chefs, um, different styles, and I thought, well, I'm not quite sure I want to go back to the same environment I was in before I, I would really like to to consider something else and I just seen in the, in the back of a trade magazine uh, that I was reading at the time uh, this advertisement for a role called a development chef okay and the way that it was it, the the article was wrote and and it, it really sort of resonated with me because it, it sounded like I'd just been and learned all the necessary skills to help me achieve this type of role <laughs> so um I ended up going to speak to the recruiter, um, had a good conversation with them uh, just to understand a little bit more about the role, about the, the person, the company that was recruiting and um, just went and had a conversation with the, the chef that was recruiting at the time. And it, and it all really snowballed from there, you know, and I still now um, see this guy on a, on a fairly regular basis, the, the, the guy who I first met in development. Um, who said, are oh, you going to be bored here? We, we only make coleslaw and potato salad. Um, I'm going to send you to my, my colleague who's, who's working across much more of a, a, a deeper and wider breadth of products within chilled convenience foods. Um, so he sent me up to see this guy. And then um, really from then, I just thought, oh, yeah, this, this, this for me sounds like a wonderful job. You know, it's, it's, it's office hours. It's, you know, you, you, you get to express yourself as a chef, but you're not under the pressure of a service. And, you know, it does take some adjusting. You know, you think you're moving from a very different environment. But ultimately, for me, it was all about retaining the character and the integrity of a chef. And, and that's what I really found when I first moved into development. And how was how prepared were you for this? How like what was the exposure at this point to like say food science, food tech? And we're talking about the '90s. Like what was? I mean, these snacks have existed for for ages. And but the most association to this are food technologists and chemical lab lab scientists and people like that. What was your exposure to this? Yeah. So uh, we we when I first moved, we were quite lucky. Uh, we we had our own. We were our own separate entity. We were working on recipe development. Um, and then what we would do is we would take that recipe and then we would hand it over to a technologist. And then a technologist would then take that recipe and make it applicable for a factory environment. So mass scale. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there was always this, um, I guess, this this conversation piece around, well, this is the recipe. This is how you've made it. These are the factors that I have to take into consideration. You know, you've made 10 portions. I've got to make 10,000. So we are going. We are within this recipe. We are going to make some shortcuts. You know, we are. There will be some compromise. Um, and I think as long as you're happy with that, you're comfortable with that, and you understand that, the goal is always to be the same as what you create in the kitchen. It will never be the same. There will always be a difference, because even from the point of processing, you are not going to make this recipe the same. You could have the same ingredients, but you do not have the same equipment. So the flavor will be different. The texture will be different, but as long as you're comfortable with those changes, then you you will thrive within uh, a development 
world. And how was, how was this transition in a personal life balance thing? Because I remember myself when I started with innovation now, yeah. it's been so shocking because, uh, I mean, at the back of the head, you know that people are going out on weekends, but then when, you, when you're the one finally going out in the evenings and weekends and seeing places crowded, it somehow shocks you because you're just used to go to a restaurant on a Monday and you're thinking, why are people flocking to restaurants suddenly? So how was that transition for you on a personal with your family, with your friends and things like yeah, that? Yeah, I thought it did, did take some getting used to. I think um, mm-hmm. I, I, I probably didn't realize that, you know, going from working sort of most evenings, most weekends to then going, well, we're only coming in Monday. We're leaving Friday. We generally leave early on a Friday. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have to come in on Saturday. We don't have to come in on Sunday. <laughs> you, 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 it, for like the first, I would say for the first six months, I was a little bit lost. You know, I was like, because you got, you've gone from, you're still working in a chef environment. Right. But your your hours and your conditions are so much different that you, you, you have to then think about, well, how am I going to fill my evenings? What what am I going to do in the evening? You know, and, and, and soon... Sooner or later, you get get to grips with it. You find things to fill that that void that time. Um, but it does take some getting used to. Definitely takes some getting used. And one, I mean, one of the benefits for me was that you know when 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 I first moved into development, and I've been with my partner for quite a while. We were we were looking at children. You know, we were looking at extending a family. And I couldn't imagine being in a restaurant environment with with a family. I just I just don't I don't see how you can be both a, a you know a, a constant father figure and work the hours that's required to sustain sustain a successful restaurant. So that really helped uh, in that respect. You know, it it, it was much more supportive, um, allowed you to flourish not only in the kitchen environment but also as a as a parent. Uh, so yeah, I think I think you know. I really enjoyed that transition. Yeah, that, I think that that's actually a very, I mean, I do not know how to look at that, that aspect of the industry because as you said, you know, you're still working as a chef background, you're still in a kitchen, you're actually, I, I, I was watching one of your interviews where you, where you mentioned that the, the amount of people you impact on a daily basis is much higher than, I mean, it's a thousand folds more than any restaurant chef. But then again, the seriousness, I mean, for you to be considered a chef, it has a very big uh, sacrifice aspect to it that as long as you're putting the long hours, as long as you are not able to commit to your family and all these aspects which are considered to be uh, not 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 proper aspects of, of life, I think, or of, of, of your work-life balance are the ones actually which validate you to be considered a serious chef. How, how does that balance work uh, today? Yeah, this this is an interesting point because um, when I first moved into development, I um, my peers uh, who were still in restaurants in kitchens, yeah, they they seen it as a as a way of copping out. They looked at it, you know, oh, you're taking the easy option. Um, I didn't see it like that. Uh, for me, this was going this this for me was me about learning new skills, you know, being able to survive in a in a corporate world being able to sustain a family environment longer term, you know, all those types of things. If I look now, there are so many of my friends, peers that are in restaurants that would love to be in development. <laughs> they, they, they would be, they, they're knocking on my door. How do I get mm-hmm. into development? And I'm like, you should have listened to me. You really should have listened. And uh, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it is down to each individual, you know, that people, people, and I still have friends that wouldn't want to be in this industry. They, for whatever reason, they, they, they love 
the atmosphere of a kitchen. They love being in that space. And it's all they've ever known. I'm pretty sure that most of them, if they stepped outside and had a taste of what development world, innovation, they would love it. And I, I almost think there's that fear of the unknown that's driving a lot of these people, not necessarily away, but it, it's not bringing them in. Yeah, I think that's that's the idea of the podcast as well, to show all these things, because I do not know how often would somebody have, I mean, it's it's unfortunate, actually, I, I think when I look at it. The, the amount of voice the chefs have earned, it's amazing. It's, it's great for the industry. The chefs finally have a voice. But then it reached from something which was non-existent. We were a blue-collar job. It was a blue-collar profession to raising to that standard. And now it's just peaked and it's just going on. Because, for example, uh, culinary schools out here in Spain, I, I'm, I'm sure out there in England as well, who are the ambassadors for them? Who are the people who are designing these courses? Who are the people they're depending on to get this constant uh, people to subscribe for their idea of education? They're all chefs because this is the brand yeah. which sells. Which This is the brand which comes on your television maybe for two hours uh, in the evening prime time. So that's the brand that sells. So that brand should design the the idea of what, the, what, what a person should study as a course of gastronomy. What is unfortunate is that I've spoken to many academics who deal with students in culinary every day. They say that everybody who starts in the first year, they all raise their hands up to be chefs. At the end of the four years, after doing their multiple stages and internships, yeah. none of them want to be there. No. But unfortunately, we are educating them for a recipe which is very different. It's not bad. It's just that we are putting them towards a thing that we think will work or has worked 30 years ago. But it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, what I want to ask you with this is that when you're looking now, say, for talent, when you're looking for somebody to work in your team, are you finding talent which is from the culinary world like you, has experience, but also knows a little about, say, what food tech is, a little about what is the future of plant-based meats or a future about how flavors work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as well because if, 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 if I'd have gone back... Um, so in, in, in one of my previous jobs, when I, when I moved out of chilled convenience foods, I went to work in the flavor industry. So in the flavor industry, and, and interesting in that, the, the, that company that I work for, Givadan, they, they that's one of our key seasoning suppliers. And when I moved to Givadan, I moved there for a specific reason because I could see how, uh, I guess it's for, you know, if you think about the popularity of Heston and, and Ferran Adria and that, that real movement to understand not only about ingredients and technique, but about the science. And this, this company, I mean, you know, if you look at any flavor company, it's all built on science, yeah? So <clears throat> I went there with a specific remit to say, look, this is a, a, a bit of a gap within my uh, skill set, yeah, my education. Uh, I love food. I'd love to know more about the science of food. So I went to Givenan and I spent the first two years trying to decipher what a chemist was telling me about molecules, in food okay. he was speaking the same thing but in a very different language so then i was thinking oh how, how do i start to understand what he's saying so i then went and did a degree in food science to begin to draw join the dots between what the chemist was telling me and what i was saying because we were we were speaking the same thing we were just using a different language now if i look at that experience um I would much rather now, and this wouldn't have been the case when I first joined development, I would much rather now employ a food scientist and teach them how to cook 
than employ a cook and teach them about food science. Because I think it's much easier the other way. Because you can learn the necessary skills as a, as a cook, as a chef, fairly quickly. Because it's a lot of it is hands-on. It's, it's, it's not as technical and, and you know, uh, you're not using as much as your brain power as you are trying to understand food science. And, and some chefs would look at that quite differently and say, well, no, I mean, being a chef is highly technical, yeah? And I do not disagree. Um, having sat on both sides of the fence, I feel it would be much harder for a chef in a kitchen to learn food science than a food scientist to learn in a kitchen. So that that's, if I'm looking at talent now, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, how much do you know about food science and how much do you enjoy food? Because the rest I can teach them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's something which which definitely works for you, and it actually presents a very credible credible source of uh, of how things work. Um, I mean, my take on this, maybe it's unpopular opinion, is that okay. Also, with this, I'd like to know how is your interaction now with the scientific world? Because you are still, I mean, you have done a food science degree, but still, for many of them, you're an outsider because your prime area is culinary culinary skills. Uh, because I have this challenge on a daily basis because I think. We are made a very different way. One plus point, which I, I mean, if there's anything positive about amongst all the things is as a chef aspect, I think uh, the, the way we deal with situation handling is, is, is irreplaceable. I mean, you suddenly are serving a menu, say in a Michelin star with 30 uh, courses and a, a, a woman turns out to be a, a pregnant woman at the end of while she, when yeah. she arrives, <laughs> it changes the menu for you. If you're serving like flowers and oysters <laughs> and it yeah. I mean, tons of things can't be served. Which would be some a situation I cannot imagine a lab scientist or a food tech expert in that because that's not how they respond. They respond to things with certain amount of time, with excels, with with their calculations and assessment of of things. For me, it's a big challenge uh, on a daily basis because uh, I expect things to be much faster, also while being appropriate. But uh, and I respond to that, and I think I can I can I can act around things. I I do not think. Maybe, yeah, maybe I can be fair enough and, and, and not lie. Maybe I cut corners as well, which I think is not something which works for food tech. For chefs, yeah. cutting corners <laughs> is something which, which lets you it's go to the service. That's a necessity, exactly. Yeah. Because at the end, the client is, is on the door. It's, he's not sitting far away and making going to make that decision to buy the product. So how, how do you see that? How, how is your interaction? What things have helped you to, to, to break this barrier a little? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's an interesting point because ultimately you're i guess from if i look at it from my perspective they cannot hoodwink me they they can't blind me with science because i know the science um whereas on the other hand there are a lot of things i could talk talk to them about in a kitchen which would be completely blinding for them they, they wouldn't know where to start so i i feel like i have a little bit of a head start but i do feel that the 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 the, the academic world in in if i if i plonk it into the kitchen environment would struggle more than a chef being thrown into so it almost contradicts the argument of me wanting to employ a food scientist but mm-hmm. i think there is something around the 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 aptitude of a chef the the ability to be able to change quickly um not be too um too concerned about things when they change pretty much in front of their eyes because often they do um if i look now you know a chef creating a menu not only has he got to create vegetarian options, he's got to create vegan options. He's got to create all of these different 
dietary requirements pretty much on the hoof. That for me, that sort of agility, that that ability to change quickly um, within the moment uh, would be very difficult for more academic brains. I think it's 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 a beautiful thing that you said with like uh, how you deal with it. I think it's a very good approach of uh, making the effort to educate ourselves and not expecting the other side to 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 buy into the conversation. I think that's a good way to you know be more prepared of uh, of knowing what you're stepping into. Uh, moving on from this, what do you think for yourself in PepsiCo right now or in the food development uh, industry at large? What are the prime challenges at the moment? What I mean is it uh, is it more to do with uh, Maybe the bureaucratic aspects, maybe the the laws around it, maybe just the creativity as such, maybe the customer actually knowing so much more today than say in the 90s. What do you see as big challenges today? Yeah, I think I think there's a few things. Certainly, uh, you know, the 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 perception of um, snacking in general um, is changing. Yeah, if if I think uh, particularly now, you know, there are lots of markets where if I describe them as unhealthy. Uh, products will be very very popular and there's no reason why they wouldn't be popular because they taste great in a lot of other markets uh, there's big drives to reduce fat reduce salt reduce sugar when you're reducing all these really nice taste components um, you have to put something else in you know and often those things that you put in which are very technology-led um, which can be in some instances can be much more expensive yet you're not expected to pass on this cost to either your customer or your consumer. That is a big challenge. Yeah. So you, you as, a, as a chef, and, and I think this is a really good example, is that, you know, we're all about striving for different flavors. You know, if we think of the basic taste components, how can we work within that constraint and then think, well, you know, this particular ingredient doesn't have a lot of salt in it this particular ingredient does have a lot of salt in it how can we balance that off you know how can we look at this and say this recipe i am not going to create any additional salt i'm not going to add any salt what can i do within this process and within these ingredients i have that will bring me some different flavors that the consumer might not notice so you think about cooking techniques you know, you think about you might want to add a little bit of spice. You might want to add a slightly different herb to bring some savory components. You might put a lot of onion, allium notes in the background underneath to bring you that real savory character. So you start playing around with different taste components in an environment where you would love to put a little bit of salt, but you can't. And that's where I think the creativity and the innovation of a, as, a, as a chef is really quite interesting. The other area I would say that is, you know, and it, it's fundamental, really, if, if, if we think about feeding the feeding the world is biodiversity of ingredients. You know, if we look, uh, I was reading some alarming statistic. It was something like 80 percent of the world's crops that are used in manufacturing come from three plants. Mm -hmm. That can't that can't be right. Yeah, that 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 has to change. You know, it's it's not been like this forever. You know, previous to this, we've had, you know, a hundred different varieties of rice. We've had a hundred different varieties of wheat. We've had no end of legumes and plants that people have used to to fertilize their own soil. Um, 
we've got to go back. We've got to turn the clock back because the way that we're going now, um, this is this will not change, but it has to change. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think a lot a lot of the work that I'm focusing on is is looking away from those particular products and saying, well, out of this family of ingredients, what can we make that tastes good? Yeah. Because you got to remember now they've been they've they've been for a long period of time now people have been exposed to corn they've been exposed to potato they've been exposed to wheat right to get them away from that we've got to think how can we tease them into this new variety you know this this new ingredient that isn't new at all it's been around for centuries just nobody's been eating it because we've managed to erode the whole crop so that is a again is a really nice sort of growth area uh, to spend some time on you know and and there are such a large amount of ingredients that we should be using that we're not using for whatever reason we need to start using we need to start getting back to that way of cooking um, and using these ingredients that are very healthy they're good for the planet they're sustainable um, why wouldn't we use them Hey, that's that's a very good aspect. Also very surprising because, I mean, uh, preparing myself for this conversation, I would not expect the research development chef of PepsiCo would speak about biodiversity and things. <laughs> and I think this gap which has which has come up, which I now being inside innovation, I understand that this uh, the other day, you know, I will not name any brand, but uh, the other day I had a conversation with a chef who was saying that the food you ate at this uh, X uh, brand, which is a fast food brand selling your usual burgers and things like that, is going to be actually more nutritive than what you could actually find, find another unfast, like a non-chain restaurant is because they have a certain amount of uh, uh, papers to fill and they have uh, certain mm -hmm. aspects they have to comply with. So it's actually much more controlled, but this bad fame around uh, processed food industry, I think it's, it's, it's huge. And I think there's no way we can take this whole uh, system out of the society of how, no. how we are today. I think it's just... Uh, making this gap smaller, understanding that the interests of all of us as humankind is 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 the same. It's 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 to have a, a sustainable future, which we can look at and be proud of. You know what we've what we've created for the next generation. In all of this, how do you see the role of uh, clean labeling? When I say clean labeling, I don't mean that the customer. I think customer today is. In, I mean, speaking from a, maybe it's a very uh, privileged position to be in Spain right now and say that I don't. I can only imagine what's how it's in India. But speaking on a European uh, perspective, I think people are aware there are applications you can scan and come to know what is inside and things like that. But then there's a lot of association of something done in a lab being bad compared to something organic. <laughs> when I say like a flavor house, for example, because you worked with flavors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, was in, I was in Israel, <laughs> Israel two months ago mm -hmm. and I had conversations with people who are, uh, who are speaking about the red tape around the flavor houses and how flavors are... It can be called natural if it has just one organic compound, but the rest of it is is done in petri dishes and uh, and separate uh, polyphenols multiplied. How do you see that? Do you think it's a really problem that we should address, or actually is just misinformation which we do not know what we're talking about? It, it, it this comes down to education, yeah. Um, if we if we if we consider, uh, you know, if if you if you wander down any supermarket aisle. Yeah. Most most brands now will only have ingredients in there for a reason. Yeah, so whether it's for shelf life, um, whether it's for preserving the colour, whether it's for taste, 
yeah they're in there for a reason you 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 may not understand from a from a consumer perspective what that particular ingredient is doing and i'm not saying everybody's white as white because they're not but Mm -hmm. on the whole uh it's in there for a reason yeah now uh if i if i consider uh, and we tend to to um particularly as we develop we tend to use and i don't like the word natural but we tend to use ingredients that if they don't need to be in the recipe then don't put them in Firstly, you're adding cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Second, and you're making the recipe much more complicated than it needs to be. So, if I think of that as a as a as a sort of a rule of thumb for when I'm designing a recipe, um, there are only going to be things in that particular recipe that are in there to add value. Everything else is surplus. Yeah. So sometimes you need to put things in recipes to be able to sustain the eating quality. For the consumer now you can take them out but the quality of the product is not going to be the same so whose whose fault is it or whose argument is it to say that everything that we produce as a as a nation in in whatever country shouldn't have this in it shouldn't have that in it shouldn't have that in it it's not it's not down to me um but i do believe there is an awful lot of education we can do on a lot of these ingredients that are used that you know might not be recognized from a from an everyday consumer point of view but they are in there for a reason the uh, the classic msg as a as an example yeah oh my god there is no scientific evidence that tells you msg is a bad for you ingredient yet we believe this is the pariah yeah if you go to Japan, you go to China, they've been using this ingredient in either its natural form or its monosodium glutamate form for centuries. There is nothing wrong with their diets. Education. All about education. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what also uh, the industry does is... Uh, it, it moves faster than culture. It moves faster than uh, people. It moves faster than many things. And I think it's just this people uh, mimic. For example, somebody opens a restaurant in Mumbai in, in India, has been for two months in Noma and puts Seabakthon on the menu. It's unnecessary. It's just, as you said, it's it's not required. Yeah. Innovation can be done in many ways. I mean, just, just, just mimicking and just understanding that one model of success could work somewhere else. Is, is not required. I think the customer is also asking a lot at this point and is getting bored very fast. I mean, the, the rate of people just getting, moving on is so so quick that I can only imagine what it could be for you as, as a job, for people in your company, from people in, in the industry at large, how to respond to these constant demands, which is which is which which are fast and also might not last as long as your 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 positioning of it as a brand or as a, as a, as a product would, would, uh, would, would picture. Uh, moving on to to more uh, real aspects today how how do you say if you could just explain to us what is your day like i mean i i can only imagine what it could be with like visits and and teaching and and and, and conceptualizing but what is a basic day in your life like uh i think it, it tends to be i mean i probably spend 50 percent of my time uh doing research um and that could be anything from reading a journal to visiting a restaurant having a conversation with a chef um going to a conference, a symposium, um, 
going to a country to understand a different culture. Um, that probably forms 50% of my work. And it, it, it's not, I can't say I'm doing that on a daily basis. It's, that's just part of, if I look at my work as a whole, that's probably part, 50% of it. Um, a lot of the work I'm doing now is around, you know, how can we, as a, I guess, as a, as a group of individuals that work in development, how can we create more of a food type environment? You know, everything that we do, if we imagine as a business, we sell so much different, so many different foods. How can we instill within our people that what we create from a, from a product point of view, ultimately is going to be something that somebody eats? Where is the joy? You know, where is the love? Uh, how does that relate back to food? How does that relate back to a story? You know, is it is it culturally driven? Um, so there's a there's a there's a piece of work that I'm, I'm doing on that type of space, and then also training. You know, how do we train? How do we equip our people within product development to have more skills that are transferable in different roles within product development? And then the the rest, I guess, is more around recipe design. You know, how do we, whether it's a new recipe or an existing recipe, how do we then look at that recipe and say, oh, you know, how do we reduce the salt or the sugar in this particular recipe? What do we need to do? Um, how can we create a different texture within this recipe? How can we bring in something that we've seen from a food trend perspective that we know is going to be quite influential further down the line? How can we take that trend and weave that into this particular type of product or this particular type of brand? What does that look like on a mass level? And, you know, I can't say typically the types of things that I'm doing, but sort of broad brush, that's um, that would be the focus of most of my time. Right. Oh wow, that's it. Looks like a very looks like a very interesting. Uh, it's interesting day. I, I can only imagine it comes with its own uh, with its own challenges and deadlines yeah. and and things and demands to respond to. I think it's been it's been a it's been a lovely conversation. And I think if if I think at the end of this, the end person who's listening to this conversation, I am myself very interested in how your journey has been. And I think many of them would like to know where how they can get closer to this this industry at a professional level. What would you say, uh, I mean, a, a young person listening to you, what are the thoughts, first of all, about how he should look at restaurant industry as, as it is today? And second, this, this transformation that you had the, the, the fortune to have, how can somebody step into that? Yeah, so I think now I, I, I did um, some uh, work recently on, you know, trying to attract the, the I guess, the younger generation. Um, into this what what I, what I believe is a fascinating field um, because as a, as a job uh, you're pretty much guaranteed job for life yeah you can move into different parts everybody needs to eat all right whatever way that is that that, that is a given so it's a really nice area to, to focus on um, I would say as a, as a young chef um, Expose yourself to as many different styles of cuisine as possible. Um, I think now, uh, if I look at the sort of younger guys, they're not spending any more than two years in a kitchen. I would say that is probably the, the minimum amount of time I would spend because it takes you at least a year to start to understand it. 
and then a year to put it into practice. So if we say two years in a, in a different environment, but try and choose cuisines that you have some type of affinity to, you know, and I, within that, I wouldn't discount, you know, going to a really good burger joint. Yeah. Spending some some time with a street food store. Yeah. Different facets of uh, the chef industry require different skills, require different thinking. So expose yourself to as many different styles as humanly possible within the time frame. Uh, read. I know chefs don't like to read. <laughs> this is... If you don't want to read, get yourself some audio books. Yeah. Just start absorbing information. Um, I know there's a lot of chefs that are really interested in exercise, you know, whether that's running, whether that's cycling. There's nothing better than popping on some headphones and just getting lost in a in a in a in a in a story of some description. Yeah. And then just network. You know, I, I put out on the a piece I did recently, I said, look, if any chef is interested in getting into development, this is my LinkedIn profile. Send me a direct message. I will help. Because I think it's important to understand that not only now are kitchen restaurants collaborative, this world of development is very collaborative. And we're always interested in bringing in new talent. So, you know, do some searches on social media. And I think LinkedIn is a great one because it's more of a professional. Yeah. Use that as your platform. Look at some chefs, look at their careers, you know, and, and that's the good thing. You can scroll down and see where they've worked. And there might be some areas that you've interested in or there might be some areas that you, you didn't even know existed. Yeah, because that's the other thing I'm finding is that chefs don't realize how many different opportunities there are to work within this industry. And just reach out to them. Just, you know, hit them with a the question. That for me is the is 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 the sort of you know getting yourself interested. Um, I don't necessarily believe that you need to go down a food science route to get into the industry. Yeah, I think for certain types of jobs it definitely helps, but I don't think it's an absolute prerequisite for you to be able to get yourself into the industry. There are an awful lot of chefs that have not gone that down that path, and they are very successful in what they do. Yeah, it does depend on which industry you see yourself working in longer term. Yeah, because you then might need to to go and study. And and all I'd say then is just be a sponge. You know, whatever you're doing, just be a sponge. Absorb information from all different types of people around you. And that will ultimately help you find or seek employment within. Mm hmm. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful what you've said. It's some, I think it's some tips which are very, very concise. And I think it's something doable for everybody. For me, the, the, the thing I take back from this is what you said about the factor to dare to dream. Because, I mean, what can go wrong? The, the day you picked up that phone and you called that company, yeah. the worst could have happened is you could have bad, gone back yeah, to the restaurant no. or, or, or yeah. applied. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think many of us, this, this, this dare to dream... Uh, factor is missing and i think that's one which makes uh, you you class apart it's been a pleasure to have you patrick it's it's you are a you're an expert in a very small niche of this of our profession and i think it's 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 been a complete pleasure to listen to you and and look at your career from from these eyes and uh, thank you so much for your time for committing to this in such a short notice 
and uh, we look forward to see all your all your all your developments in the in the in the supermarkets you're not very not very yes. far from us wherever we are <laughs> Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I see. I think the yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we have we haven't mentioned it, but a, a recent piece of work I did, and this, the, you know, this it, I guess is the real nice part is that you get to work with some incredible people. So um, last year I developed um, some some flavors for. Uh, we have a brand in Spain called Lay's Gourmet. Oh yes, mm-hmm. and I worked with Kiki da Costa. Oh wow. So we developed three of his recipes into three flavors that went onto chips that are now sitting in the Spanish market. So that type of thing where you, you, you know, you can get access to these, you know, these very well-known chefs that have a real uh, interest in working with you is, is again, is a, is a reason for wanting to try and get yourself in. Yeah. Cause they're, those types of things are, are, are really good. You learn so much from spending some time with these guys. So I've enjoyed it. It's been good fun. Thank you so much. I think that's the. I think this is the last. It's a nice call for action for people to go out and buy that that packet because I think that's yeah. the whole idea of food tech. Food tech sounds so fancy, but at the end, the end purpose is to make innovation accessible. And I think Absolutely. that your job does that in the most beautiful way. Yeah. So on that note, I think we leave it here. And thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you. So that's it from this week's episode of Boyatras, a podcast where we bring to you the voice of the fugitive chefs. If you like listening to these interviews. Do subscribe to us so that you do not miss out on any of these episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as Boyatras Podcast. We release new episodes every Tuesday, alternating between English and Spanish. 